Lester Burnham's rebellions seem adolescent and immature because that's all he's got. His world is so stultifying. You can either be you can either be a a walking dead adult or a footloose and fancy free teenager. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and in retrospect, that that seems sad rather than triumphant. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk about another movie that's celebrating an anniversary this year, specifically this one. We're having everyone write out a job description. That way, management can assess who's valuable and who's expendable. My parents are trying to take an active interest in me. Why can't they just have their own lives? I'm so proud of you. You didn't screw up once. Oh my god. It says psycho next door. Jane, what if he worships you? I didn't mean to scare you. I'm not obsessing. I'm just curious. Why does he dress like a Bible salesman? Today I quit my job. And then I blackmailed my boss for almost $60,000 past these barriers. That's from the trailer to American Beauty, the 1999 Best Picture Oscar winner directed by Sam Mendes that starred Kevin Spacey and Annette Bening. I was utterly transfixed by this movie when it came out 20 years ago, and it's probably the last time I went to the cinema three different times to watch the same movie. Yet unlike most of the anniversary movies I've celebrated on this podcast this year, movies like Shawshank and Pulp Fiction and Do the Right Thing, American Beauty hasn't aged well for me, and the more I watch it, the more I wonder why I loved it so much in the first place. So, this week, to help me figure out why I've soured on American Beauty, I called my go-to film critic Kevin Smokler. You'll recall earlier this year, in episode 60, he and I chatted for two hours about great travel movies. Today, Kevin and I talk about American Beauty, which satirizes the suburban frustrations of a man named Lester Burnham and his family and his neighbors, and we speculate on why this movie that dazzled me in 1999 doesn't really hold up for me in 2019. A reminder, as always, to please subscribe to Deviate on your favorite podcasting service and leave a friendly review. And head over to Airtrex.com, my longtime sponsor, which can help you save money on multi-stop or round-the-world flight itineraries. And even if you don't have a specific trip planned, Airtrex is a great way to plug in sample itineraries and dream about your future vagabonding journeys. But for now, please listen in as Kevin Smokler and I talk about American Beauty and why a movie I once loved no longer resonates with me. American Beauty is is a movie that really, really dazzled me when I first saw it. Uh, I remember there was a lot of buzz around the movie, and I forget why, but the marketing campaign said, look closer. It was a buzz for the Oscar. It ended up winning Oscars. Um I saw it in the cinema. 1999 was actually a big travel year for me. I was gone most of the year. But when I was back in the United States for just a month or two in the fall, I saw the movie in the cinema three times, which is something I just don't do for movies anymore. It just wouldn't occur to me to see a movie in the cinema three times anymore. Um, a few years later, I got it on VHS. I was one of those uh, late adopters to DVD, I guess. But then later, I got it on DVD. And then about... In the early 2010s, I watched it again around the same time that I was the same age as Lester Burnham is in the movie, and I felt this sense of disconnect. I, I, I just, it, it's, the movie no longer made sense to me, and Lester Ooh. Burnham seemed strange, and the movie seemed kind of stilted. And um, actually, my listeners should probably know I'm talking to Kevin Smokler right now, and he's here to f- help me figure out why I may have uh, <laughs> felt this disconnect. Um, to American Beauty. It's, it's an anniversary year for American Beauty. It's 20 years since it came out, and I've done a lot of movie anniversaries, but this is one example of a movie that dazzled me 20 years ago, but I've sort of lost track of of why. It, it doesn't make sense to, anymore, to me anymore. So do, do you remember your first experiences with this movie? Yeah, I, I felt very similarly. And, you know, I, I, I 1999 for you was was that when Vagabonding came out um, or was Vagabonding written about 1999 later? It was um, it was the year I became a travel writer. Uh, mm. it's, it's when I started writing for Salon, and then it's it was when I wrote Storming the Beach, uh, which be, which was in Best American Travel Writing, and really gave my career a leg up. And so Vagabonding was contracted in two thousand one, two years later, and it came out in two thousand three, which was four years later. So it was gotcha. a very pivotal year for me, and that that could be one reason why it's a big. Um, 
anniversary. Like I have, I have this podcast and I'm a travel guy, but I've, I've covered a lot of movies this year because 1994, which is 25 years ago, was a big travel year for me. That's when I lived in a van and traveled around America. And 1999, 20 years ago, was when I traveled across Asia for the first time. And in this particular instance, maybe the fact that I came home from a very intensive overseas trip, saw a movie called American Beauty, which captures some very American things, that could have lent to why I was so dazzled with it at the time. After having been to all of these foreign places, suddenly seeing American Beauty was this weird injection of American pop culture. What, what about you? How do, how do you remember seeing it for the first time? I was in graduate school at in Austin, at UT Austin, and I was studying American studies. And so it was a particularly deadly combination in retrospect for this movie because not only um, was I sort of knee-jerk attracted to anything with the word American in it because I thought it justified this this turn I had taken in my mid-20s that I myself didn't quite understand and still don't, um, why I decided – to pursue higher education other than other than I thought I needed it because I'd sort of been a dipshit in college. Um, but I was also filled with, you know, sort of mid-20s self-righteousness. And I think the judgmental nature of American beauty really spoke to me because I thought it was putting into words something that I something that I that I objected to with all of with all of my 25 year old soul and um, but didn't really have any any eloquent way of 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 saying so or at least not a way that that that, that would would land with anyone other than me being obnoxious. Um, and so I thought the, the movie the movie made an argument for me artfully that I couldn't make for myself Um Interestingly, the argument that movie makes, I, I find, is the least interesting thing about it now and the thing that holds up the poorest. Um, I think I still like the movie. I saw it last night, and I think it's still beautifully done in a lot of ways and has a lot going for it. But the the object of its condescension, the thing that movie is angry about, I, I, I think it needs to like. I think it needs to like settle down and take a nap because I I, I think it's I, I think it's kind of kind of a lot of hot it's it's anger and and the satire fueled by its anger is quite frankly it, it fizzles like a wet firecracker to me well we can we can dig into that anger and how it works and how it doesn't work uh though though it's interesting that that you know i i love that movie unquestionably unquestionably when i first saw it i think because it was it was easy to sort of look down on lester burnham but then when i became the age of lester burnham suddenly um, the patheticness of Lester Burnham seemed weird to me. You know, it just somehow it didn't connect with me. Um, and so I think this sets up a lot of interesting things we can discuss. Before we before we pick it apart, let's talk about why it works. Because it is a, you know, it won the Oscar. It's a beautiful looking movie. And obviously it really, it really transfixed audiences back then. Um, what do you think works well about this movie? First and foremost, it, it's a movie that had very little going for it in terms of in terms of who was it, who was attached to it at the very beginning, but and, 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 and what they managed to get despite having very little going for it. This is a movie that had a a director who'd never made a feature film before, um, a sc a screenwriter who had basically worked in in sitcom and episodic television, um, and had a rather I, I, I believe if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, had a rather middling career on, on the stage, and American Beauty was originally written for the stage. Um, and it had an it, it had I don't exactly know the order that it was cast in, but it, it's difficult to remember in retrospect that Annette Benning was the biggest star in this movie at the time it was made, not Kevin Spacey. But I, first and foremost, I give credit. I give credit to its casting, which is which is remarkable given how little this movie had to play with. Yeah, and and then on top of all that, Sam Mendes, who who was a play guy himself, this is the first movie he directed, um, gave it a tone that was somehow mesmerizing. It felt like, and and the music uh, has something to do with that, I think, uh, and the visuals. You know, there's this idea of. The roses, and I didn't know this until I was researching this recently, but the American Beauty rose is is, is a kind of rose that's beautiful, but tends to rot a little bit uh, down towards yeah. the the the, the, st the stem. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was something 
about the way Mendez directed this that in tandem with the with the sort of humor and surprises of Alan Ball's script, uh, I think really kept you engaged because I mean, they're, they're, even though even though there's some things that we can unpick about Lester Burnham, and we'll get to that eventually. You know, when he quits his job, it's just such a triumphant moment to watch. You know, uh, and so somehow through its very style, um, logic of the script notwithstanding, uh, it really draws you in. Uh, very much so. I, I mean, the score is by Thomas Newman, which is which is remarkable, and it has that sort of cold metallic quality that, like, I, I, I it's closest cousin, and I'm probably saying this because I I don't know I, I'm speaking as someone who doesn't know enough about film scores, but its closest cousin to me is the score for Heather's, which hmm. also feels like like I I think in my my book about eighties teen movies I said the score for Heather's feels like a tarantula climbing up a white wall. Um, there's something just just creepy and and plucky and and skin crawly about it. Um, and I think it it underlines the sort of it, it, it gives both pathos and yet life to the to the artificialness of the of the circumstances and the uh, and the peril the characters find themselves in. And also and also it almost makes it kind of a thriller because because the movie despite you know despite being both a comedy and a tragedy at the same time also ends as a kind of who done it murder mystery um the main character says i'll be dead by the end of the movie but you have no idea until the movie's last 3 minutes how he ends up dead yeah that's that's um something i want to get come back to too because i think like the script that alan ball was writing when he started american beauty ended up being different from the movie that it ended up being. Uh, and so it starts with this, you sort of know what's going to happen. You know, Lester Burnham is going to die. But then, in a way, the movie ceases to be about his murder, which is sort of strange. But um, structurally, it has very orthodox plot points. It, it seems like a very uh, workmanlike script in that sort of in the middle of the movie, the second plot point is when Ricky and Jane sort of become a couple, which is about the same time that Lester quits his job so satisfyingly, which is about the same time that, that Carol, uh, Caroline and the and Buddy, the real estate king, start to have their affair. Um, and then at the end, uh, there, all these things are happening that Ricky and Jane are, are preparing to run away at the same time that Lester sort of has this romantic certs moment with Angela um, while Carolyn is going, presumably, to kill him. And so structurally, uh, it hits all the right beats as a screenplay. And one thing about, I think one reason why I walked out of this movie so transfixed years ago was the ending. I guess I could be pretty pissed off about what happened to me. But it's hard to stay mad when there's so much beauty in the world. Sometimes I feel like I'm seeing it all at once, and it's too much. My heart fills up like a balloon that's about to burst. And then I remember to relax and stop trying to hold on to it. And then it flows through me like rain. And I can't feel anything but gratitude for every single moment of my stupid little life. You have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm sure. But don't worry. You will someday. So it ends on this very um, interesting existential tone. So some critics have said that it, that was sort of too on the nose. And there is an extent to which I think that it's it sort of diverges from who his character is in other places. But when I saw that movie, especially at that time in life, I liked the idea that of finding beauty in the mundane. I liked the idea of savoring every moment of your life. And so I think a big reason why I was transfixed with this movie, in addition to its artistry, is that the ending somehow grabbed me. Yeah, I mean, the ending, the the, the thing I... I, I remember finding the ending very satisfying when I saw the movie at 25, and I look back upon that monologue that Lester Burnham gives at the end, and it just screams like 24-year-old freshman MF or you know first-year MFA student to me. Um, someone who's someone. It, it seems very like like that. The language there seems 
uh, I, I mean, Alan Ball was not 25 when he wrote this screenplay, and it seems like it was written by someone a lot long, younger and less mature and less talented than him. I, and by the way, I, I happen to love movies. There aren't a lot of them, but I happen to love movies that are being narrated to you by a dead character. You know, maybe it's because like Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity are two of my favorite movies from, you know, a, a, an earlier era of Hollywood. Um, I just happen to love that that device. Um, but I wonder if like what is being said in that monologue is is more of substance than the way it's being said. Well, there's there's something very weird about the way we have sort of wise Lester speaking the monologue and then oafish Lester and sort of impetuous Lester living the actions of the movie. And I want to get back to that in a second. I'd like to sort of break down Lester as a character. But while we transition in the idea of how it might not work, let's look at at the big picture idea of its critique of the suburbs. Um, Mm -hmm. Because at the time, as as a guy in his 20s, I thought that that was interesting. And I didn't really question that that much. But in retrospect, it feels like by the late 1990s, the suburbs was an idea that had been criticized and satirized for a long time. I mean, just the idea of suburbs in America as we understand them, sort of see them as a post-World War II thing um, that, that are attached to, to, to Levittown and the GI Bill. And of course, there's, a, there's an inherent racial complexity with redlining and, and how certain uh, black GIs were excluded from this. But Following on to this, like in the 1950s and 1960s, there's this notion that there's, that the suburbs are a place of conformity and sameness. Um, and I'm sure that there's some truth to that, but I'm also sure there's com- some complexity and counter narratives to that. But then the counterculture really arose out of the suburbs, for, for lack of a better word, in the 1960s. And then ever since, in art, it seems like they've been a, a, a pretty wide target for criticism, including Generation X, which was sort of the the um, sort of what I came of age into this dialogue about Generation X and what it was, uh, and the idea. I remember in my first articles I read about Generation X, I was reading about how well Generation X people have been raised in the suburbs and they don't feel comfortable there. Well, in retrospect, that seems silly. I, I think the people commenting on Generation X in the early 1990s were people from elite colleges who had grown up in the suburbs and were suddenly in more urban areas and were looking down on the suburbs in, in retrospect. So um, I think that there is a critique, a very apt critique of the of the privilege that happens, the, the, the privilege that underpins the idea that, 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 that suburbs are a place where people feel sad and confined, you know, when in fact it's sort of the winners of American culture who end up in the suburbs, especially the the upper middle class suburbs where it seems like Lester Burnham lives. Um, so what would you make of how American beauty deals with its critique of the suburbs? It just seems kind of late to the party, doesn't it? Like, mm. like I mean, if you think about the fact that like American beauty was Sam Mendes's first movie as a director And Revolutionary Road was his fourth. Revolutionary Road comes out in 2008 and is based on a – but it is set in the 1950s and was based on a novel written in the 1950s, which is a searing critique of the suburbs, like during during the glory days of the suburb. So the idea that – the idea that the suburbs is the suburbs are a, a a place where we all go to 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 die of boredom and conformity is an idea that has been around as long as the suburbs have been around um and it kind of by the 1990s the idea uh, uh, tired as it is it, it, it is getting new life not only in movies like american beauty but also in movies like but also in movies like I, the ice storm which i think comes just a little bit later um and movies like fight club which are which is essentially even though fight club was almost exclusively filmed on sound stages is essentially an attack on on sort of american suburban values um by 1990, we by 1999 when American Beauty comes out, we are already 
in the full swing of America's post-suburban revolution. Um, not only does, or I guess you could say America's urban renewal. Um, American cities kind of hit their nadir in the 1980s. Uh, if you remember all of those teen movies in the 1980s about what scary places inner cities were and how suburbs were safe and warm places, um, that begins to reverse itself by the 1990s, not the least of which is because of what's actually happening in the world. American Beauty comes out at a moment where we are not only considering what it means to be an American male um, in movies like Fight Club and in, in, in movies like In the Company of Men, um, but we are also, because we are at the dawn of the millennium, considering these larger existential questions about what have we sp been spending our lives on. And not only is that the plot – and the th one of the themes of American Beauty, but the movie is called American Beauty. Never mind that it's that it's about you know about a, a, a breed of rose. Most people who watched it didn't know that. Um, they thought it was like it it was it was the title was meant to show that the movie was a comment on our time. Um, a, a interesting bit of trivia. I'll insert right here, and then I'll be quiet. Um, because Mina Suvari was in American Beauty and an American Pie the same year, American Pie's original title was, I believe, something like First Piece, like some pun on on a pie. And they changed it to an American to American Pie so the movie would not just be funny. The title would not just be funny when you saw the movie itself, but it would be some sort of statement of a generation. It would be a moment in time. And when you throw the word, unless you're doing it ironically, which I don't think this movie was, when you throw the word American into a into the title of a movie, that almost always happens. We almost always think of it as as holding up a mirror to where we are now. Well, it's interesting that you, me you mentioned Sam Mendes, the director, because he's British, right? Yeah. Uh, and so – it's possible that he had a less sophisticated understanding of American suburbs when he when he directed American Beauty, because in a way it's sort of his tourist movie. You know, it feels like he's coming in, and um, and it feels like like Alan Ball made an angry script about the suburbs that was sort of informed by the ins insipidity of American sitcoms, and in a way his his critique was as much about how suburbs are portrayed as much as how they are. And Sam Mendes came in and really shot a movie that wasn't a satire of how suburbs are perceived. He shot a movie that makes us feel like it's an actual critique of suburban life as it is. I think that's a really good point. Almost like almost like the American suburb is not Sam Mendes' first language. Um, and and while and while Amer Alan Ball's take on it was was probably was probably a little bit more sophisticated and 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 coming from his background in network television, um, Sam Mendes's Sam Mendes's take on it flattens the, those layers of nuance. I, I I think I think that's a very that's a very good take. It's almost like God. It almost reminds me like I, I heard recently that the, that the, that the songwriter who wrote the Britney Spears song "Hit Me Baby One More Time." Um, his first language was not English, um, mm. and it was Swedish. And so "Hit Me Baby One More Time" was was accused when it came out of being uh, of being pro domestic violence or pro pro relationship violence, um, when in reality um, the phrase "hit me, baby" to a Swedish speaker means "call me." Hmm. Um, so uh, it, it's very interesting when, when a, when a creator is dealing with a subject that is not, that is not their first language actually met or metaphorically, we get, we get there, there, it, there is bound to be some sort of mix up in translation. And I, and I, I do believe that is, that is happening in this, in this movie, um, in American beauty. I, I also think like, like the, th I, I think Alan Ball's anger um, at sort of the setting of this movie that fuels so much of it, it, it is really a kind of a kind of mashed down smaller version of something that is a priority in all of his movies, which is how do we spend our lives? Like like in some total, what do we what how do we how 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 do we make the most of the time we have? And I think that really comes full flower in it in his work on six feet under, which is, which is literally about how we spend our lives because that show is about death. Yeah. And I want to get back to six feet under, because in a way it feels like six feet under 
is a little bit subtler, at least in its first season, which is one of my favorite seasons of television, uh, than, than what happens in American Beauty. And in fact, when I saw American Beauty, when I saw it sort of through cynical eyes um, in the 2010s, I, I had to look up to see where Alan Ball was from, because suddenly it felt like this was a movie about the suburbs by a guy who didn't know the suburbs. But he's from Marietta, Georgia, which is a big white suburb of Atlanta, basically. Mm. So presumably he does know the suburbs from an empirical and experiential level, yet it feels like the anger and a lot of the characters, and I want to dig into the characters in a second, um, the anger and the characters in this script are really about his time as an insipid sitcom writer and all of the cliches, all the hugging and learning um, educational cliches that he had to deal with. You know, just the idea that in American entertainments, the suburbs are a static backdrop. Um, again, not they, they haven't been without criticism, but in certain kinds of American uh, entertainment, stat, the suburbs are a, a, a static backdrop that are never questioned. And he was questioning that depiction of American suburbs rather than the Marietta, Georgia suburbs he knew. That's, that's just how it feels to me. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think, I, I mean, tell me, tell me if we're saying the same thing, but I feel like, I feel like, Alan Ball is is making Alan Ball's fury at at, at working in, in in sitcom and serialized television is in part that the suburban backdrop is supposed to stand in for all of our experience. Hmm. It's supposed to be universal, and it is not. Uh, and and that is a and that is a completely false conclusion because Lord help us if that is what we are all supposed to see as the thing we want. Um. And yet he goes ahead and he and and Sam Mendes and team go ahead and make practically the same mistake in American Beauty. Um, I, I I understand that 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 evolution in Hollywood is a very slow thing. Um, it, it makes zero sense to me that there is not a single person of color in American Beauty. It, it really makes no sense at all. Um, and it would be you, you you said American Beauty in 2019 and, and they would think you would think the movie had been like cast by the Klan or something like that. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but um, but it it, it, it looks it, it is one of the most dated things about that movie. Um, not the least with not the least of which is that we were already in the process of we, we were already well past the age in American urbanism where cities had become uh, cities had become blacker and browner and suburbs had become whiter. Um, we were already the suburbs were already being integrated by the late 80s and the early 90s. And so so I, that is a that is a, a creative choice that these guys made that really makes no sense to me. Right. Well, as a, as a travel writer, um, there's this notion that place is its own character, right? That, that the place is important and one must capture it in its nuances. And you were talking about how cities were transforming in the 1990s. And one side effect of the fact that cities were being rejuvenated in the 1990s is that poor people moved to the suburbs, you know, as... as Precisely, as, yeah. <laughs> as, as wealthy white people moved into the city, um, that... Oftentimes, by the early 2000s, you ha actually had immigrant communities in cities like Minneapolis. There were, you know, Somalis. You were likely to run into a Somali family in the suburbs, especially the older suburbs that had lower property values than in, in the inner city. And it, it really depended on the city, but that's the whole thing, you know, um, that I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, which is a Midwestern place, and poor people sometimes lived in cheap apartment buildings, but often they would just live in... in Parts of the city that were built during World War II for the aircraft companies that had yards. Um, yeah, and exactly. So I remember during this Gen X thing that said, oh, well, Gen Xers are from the suburbs. I was thinking, well, my city doesn't have suburbs. Am I from the suburbs? Well, I, yeah. came, I came from a house with a yard. In, in um, But then like the poor kids who went to school with me sometimes had yards too. So I really think the idea of the suburbs as a generic construct, especially an all-white one, is something that was – if not dated by 1990, it was pretty close to being dated by 1999. So I think one thing that that the creative people sort of get wrong in this movie is this very broad palette caricature of the suburbs. And on that note, caricature note, let's look at the characters a little bit because it feels like though they're often interesting and often you're you're, you're rooting for them in certain ways. Um, 
it feels at times like the the characters little are a little stilted and not fully formed um and so i guess i guess we'll start with lester burnham um just because he's 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 the protagonist and it feels i I think well okay so his epiphany is sort of you can disagree with me but it feels like it's sort of awakened by lusting for his teenage daughter's teenage friend yeah (laughs) and then Uh then the way that he comes into independence and freedom from the suburbs is doing very teenagey things he gets this. He he quits his job and gets a job in fast food, which is exactly what he was doing in 1973, right? He gets a mm-hmm. muscle car, which is exactly what he would have dreamed of doing in, in 1973. So, what I took as an epiphany when the movie came out, in retrospect, it just sort of seems like teenage regression. And I think that's one of the big, one of the big issues that's going on in this movie about is that what is youth and what is adulthood, and the fact that youths want to be adults very badly and adults sort of wish they were youthful very badly but you know shouldn't we just be better versions of our adult and youthful self and so so what happens is that lester burnham we're sort of cheering as lester burnham fights stands up for himself but in a way that is so teenageness that it's almost um absurd and then, just to add on to this, he has this epiphany that leads into that speech at the very end, that speech that inspires every 25-year-old, including me. I think I was 28 when this movie came out. But the audience hears his inner thoughts, but his family never hear the, hears those. Basically, he gets murdered, and his wife and daughter never know how much perspective he has on himself and how much he truly loves them. So it feels like a big idiosyncrasy of the Lester character who we sort of end up rooting for is that it's sort of a movie epiphany and not a human epiphany. Does, does that make any sense? What, what it, it makes complete, it, it makes complete sense. Yeah. I, I think the movie is, the movie is, is its biggest flaw is it, is it is so intent on hammering its themes home that it, it commits two errors, both, both of which you've kind of outlined already, which is that the characters, there are there are several characters in this movie that basically exist to further the themes. Um, Wes Bentley is a far better actor than that than they than they have him than what they what little they have him doing in this. And he, movie. he plays Ricky Fitz. Yeah, uh, same with Mina Savari. I, I mean, I understand by the very nature of this movie, her her her, her job is to basically look great in a, in a bathtub full of rose petals, but. Um, but she's a far better actress than 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 this movie has room for her to do. Um, I, I don't know why this comparison comes to mind. It feels a little bit like Fahrenheit 451 to me, which is like the book is a very slim, like 189 pages, and characters come in and out. You know, like the like the the, the neighbor teenage girl who was supposed to represent some view of another life for the main character. But she's basically pushed aside so, you know, she basically comes on to represent that for five seconds and then is pushed aside so we can get with the book burning. Like, um, I, I, I feel like this movie is kind of doing the same thing. And I, I, I give it a little bit of a break because culturally we, we – it's only 1999. We're in the middle of the first dot-com boom. We do not have the reverence for sort of, you know, CEOs wearing hoodies and and, and the and and the the unending the unending clinging to youth as as a totem of success and not taking yourself too seriously that comes in the 21st century. You know, um, we don't have we don't have Sergey Brin and Larry Page accepting their first Webby on rollerblades at this point. Um, we uh, we still have pr- we still have pretty caught up, pr- pretty sort of calcified ideas of what a grown up is and what a young person is, um, because if American Beauty is made in 2009, Lester Burnham sits down, has an honest conversation with his wife and says, what I really want to do is like is like open is like open an organic donut shop. <laughs> and, and she's like, of course, dear, if that's what, if that's what you're, and I really want to work a hundred hours a week perfecting, an, you know, a, 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 a vegan maple curler recipe. And his wife goes, of course, dear, if that's what your heart's telling you, we'll make it work. Like, yeah, it, I, it feels like, like uh, Carolyn is sort of an accomplice in this, in 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 what you're just describing is that Annette Bening won an Oscar for for playing that role, but it feels like Carolyn Burnham 
is never quite fully human. She's such a caricature, such a brittle person. Um, mm-hmm. And it and it feels like that character is sort of hard to understand. She has some great lines. Like I love when she when she's trying to explain how hard her life was to her daughter, and she said, "We had to grow up in a, in a duplex. We didn't even have yeah. our own house." Which which I just love that line. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, at the same time, it feels like she's sort of hard to understand. That she's she's serving the themes of the movie uh, at the expense of of being a more understandable person. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we don't know how Caroline Burnham got this way. We don't know. We don't know. We we enter the movie too late for her to be fully human. Um, it's almost like we wish the movie would have begun five years before where clearly something went wrong in this marriage. I would have liked to have known what that was. Um, and I think I, I think to go back to what you were saying just a minute ago, I, I think the movie gets itself stuck in this position. I mean, on the one hand, it 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 is it supports the theme of the movie. Uh, Lester Burnham's rebellions seem adolescent and immature because that's all he's got. Um, his world is so stultifying. You can either be you can either be a a Walking Dead adult or a Footloose hmm. and Francy free teenager. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and in retrospect, that that seems sad rather than triumphant. Hmm. Um, I, I guess to the credit of our modern age, we have we have more ways for someone to pivot in adulthood than 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 we did back then. Um, it's it's interesting. I think that in a way, Alan Ball has said that he sort of um, modeled Lester Burnham on himself, maybe as sort of the frustrated sitcom writer self. And while he didn't say this, it feels like Ricky Fitz is an alter ego. He's like the younger version of an Alan Ball persona. Because in some ways, Ricky Fitz doesn't feel like a teenager. Like, like, no. Like, like he films a dead lady where he talks yeah. about filming a dead lady. I mean, sometimes he, he feels like the, a 60-year-old teenager um, who happens to be a Zen Buddhist and, you know, I, I thought that the plastic bag scene, which is one of the most famous scenes in the movie where it floats around and he, he sort of talks about how beautiful it is. And this bag was just dancing with me. Like a little kid begging me to play with it. For 15 minutes. Yesterday I realized that there was this entire life behind things. And this incredibly benevolent force that wanted me to know that there was no reason to be afraid. I was really moved by that scene, but it's such an old man observation. Like, like somehow this doesn't feel like a real person so much as a distillation of what the screenwriter feels like would be an idealized young person who just happens to have $40,000 and is a great videographer and knows exactly what he wants in, in, in Jane Burnham. Yeah. I I mean, it's like, and and let's not forget his fascination with death, which of course would come full flower in six feet under Um, Ricky Fitz's fascination with death, with death, Um, which includes, I might add, Staring and smiling at Lester Burnham, who's just blown his brains out at the end of the movie. It's in retrospect, it's a bizarre thing that, you know, of course, Ricky Fitz, who sees the beauty in what other people might not see beauty in, still, it's your girlfriend's dad has just committed suicide, and your first reaction is to is to smile and look at the symmetry of the blood stain. It just it seems strange. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's. It's the kind of you almost you almost feel the sort of painful transition of this movie, the awkward transition, I should say, of this movie from from stage to screen at that point, because like you can see that moment having real impact in a theater and and in a a movie. But 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 on screen, it just looks like, okay, what happens now? Like and um, and uh, it, it feels it feels bizarre and, and a little empty um uh on screen yeah i um i i think this uh i i think this the seams of this movie are very visible and, and i guess i guess having seen it for the first time in many years last night i haven't really made up my mind if that is to its detriment 
or that's um, that's to its uh, I don't know to its credit, you know, that that it's that it's its imperfections are part of its beauty. Well, I think another place where we see the seams in this movie are in the character of Colonel Fitz of of, of Ricky's dad, and it feels like in 2019, if a straight screenwriter wrote Colonel Fitz as like the most prominent gay or gay leaning character in the screenplay, it would be it would seem very strange, right? But Alan Ball, who is gay himself, wrote this super repressed gay character. And, and, and the only other gay characters in the movie are Jim and Jim, the neighbors, who are almost mm-hmm. – they're caricatured in the same way as Caroline, that they're these very um, suburban um, veneer of perfection type guys. And, and they, they seem harmless. And, and in 2019 having – or in, I'm sorry, in, in 1999 having a, a gay couple in the suburbs seemed interesting, right? Yeah. But, but we have basically this – really, really repressed homophobic depiction of homosexuality through Colonel Fitz. And then when right before Colonel Fitz's big moment where he's revealed where he reveals his sexual leanings and then later ends up murdering Lester Burnham, he views what he thinks is his son being no, what he thinks is his son pleasuring Lester Burnham through the window. And and this is something that Wesley Morris in his review of the movie back in the day called a Jack Tripper moment. Do you know what I mean by a Jack Tripper moment? Yeah. Yeah. And and our younger my younger listeners might not understand. This is actually it's from Three's Company, which is a sitcom that was popular in the eighties, especially the early mid nineteen eighties, where a lot of the comedy hinged on the fact that Jack Tripper would see something, or Mr. Roper, his his repressive landlord, would see something that he would misunderstand as a sexualized situation. And so Wesley Morris, who's a friend of the podcast, and I know that you're as big a fan of him as, uh, as I am. He's a New York Times critic now. He says that um, Colonel Fitz missees him bent over Lester from across the way as if Ricky had suddenly become Jack Tripper and the Colonel a presumptuous Mr. Roper. The climax is stirring, but disposable and cheap. And I thought while we were floating above those suburban trees and lawns that we were looking for David Lynch to lend the fel- film his blue velvet ear. <laughs> <laughs> so so when, when Wesley Morris says that, he actually touches on the fact that a, a decade and a half earlier that David Lynch had actually unpacked the, the, the rotten insides of the suburbs. Um, and so what do you make of, of Colonel Fitz as a character who very obviously the movie hinges on him and a lot of the characters hinge on him, but it's a, it's a weird depiction of his psychosis, I think. Yeah, and it's I, – I, I really got to give Chris Cooper credit because he does a lot – when there's not a whole lot there. Like, I, I think Chris Cooper, as best he can, you know, gets to the pathos of this character. And, and the best scene with the Colonel Fitz character is one scene before all this stuff happens where he tells his son to get out. Um, and and I don't remember exactly what Ricky says, but he's got his fists up and you can tell he's already starting to crumble. That his that his iron will and resolve is is very is actually very weak. Um, and, uh, I, I, I think it's almost worth mentioning that he has, he doesn't have much to do, but he has many more exciting things to do than Allison Janney who plays, you know, mm-hmm. Allison, but this movie has a pre West wing, Allison Janney in it as his wife. Less, yeah. As his wife, lest we forget. Um, she does. She does more with that character, with that character than, than, than he, than he can. Um, her character who never leaves the house and has maybe three scenes is better written than his character, um, which is too bad. Um, but yeah, his, his, uh, this, in order to have that character come full flower and actually be a real person instead of a convenient, instead of a convenient sort of plot twist, um, and in order for, you know, Ricky to, to, actually for us actually to feel the layers of mystery that Wes Bentley is trying valiantly to bring to that character. This movie probably needed one more rewrite. Like I, 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 it feels to me that that, that there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, tabs, there's, there's a lot of uh, rough corners and tabs poking out of this movie that could have, that could have been smoothed down. Yeah. It almost feels like it, it could, 
just to get into these characters and who they are, you, it would make an interesting like mini season of television, you know, to get some backstories going and and get some and just let these characters breathe a little bit because so so many of them just serve the plot and the themes that it's hard to understand who these people really are. And I and I heard that Alan Ball at one point early in the drafts wrote a scene for Colonel Fitz where he has sort of a crush on a fellow Marine who ends up dying. And then he assumes that it's because of his lustful desires that made the Marine die. So there, the reason that Alan Ball took it out is that nobody else had a flashback. Um, mm, yeah. And so... I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Even even then, it, it makes it makes him a complicated character. You know, I, I think you could do an entire series about... Uh, you know, in fact... Um, you know, the, the, the idea of gay people in the military has become an entire conversation in the last 20 years. Um, but it, it's just a strange premise for him. And then I think also the Colonel Fitz character is also a victim of the fact that Alan Ball started this screenplay because he was inspired by the Amy Fisher, Joey Botafuco um, attempted murder in the early 90s, I think. Have you heard about this? I, I, I know this case, but I, I don't quite understand how Alan Ball was inspired to write American Beauty because of it. Well, I think he saw this as, as sort of an unpacking of the rotten core of suburbia. Don't quote me on that. But I think originally the movie – in fact, I think these scenes were shot. It was going to be that Ricky Fitz and, and Jane were going to be on trial for killing Lester Burnham. And mm. so it was going to be this sort of whodunit thing where the audience knows that Ricky and Jane didn't do it, but we don't really know who did do it. And you have to keep in mind that by the end of the movie, the audience has been dissuaded from the idea, even though they talk about murdering Lester Burnham on camera, we know that they don't really intend to. But Carolyn Burnham is driving to Lester's house at the end of the movie with her gun out. Yeah. And, and the viewer is led to believe that she could kill him too. So it's a strange story where... And I think this might be because of the original structure of the screenplay is that from a certain point of view, there are three potential murderers at the end of this movie where we have this character who we learn from his own voiceover has suddenly transformed. But then the instant that he humanizes, his brains are blown out. So it's just a it's a weird place to end the movie. And one of the one other nitpick I'm going to draw in is the idea of Angela, um, who is the, you know, the, the Lolita friend of Jane. That suddenly Angela is reveals herself as a virgin, which is sort of a pretext for Lester not wanting to sleep with her anymore. And it just feels weird that this in obviously insecure but very pretty girl would suddenly give herself sexually to her friend's dad. So um, what, what do you make of all this? Just the structure with which the movie makes and then these strange decisions on the characters of, of, of people like Angela. Yeah, I feel like what we're supposed to take from the end of the movie is nothing is what it seems. And, you know, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Colonel Fitz thinks Ricky and Lester are having sex. Uh, Colonel Fitz ends up being gay. Angela ends up being a virgin. Um, we think everything is leading up to uh, to uh, Annette Benning killing Lester Burnham. But that doesn't happen. Um, it, it, the movie begins with uh, Jane and Ricky joking about killing Lester Burnham. Huh. That doesn't happen either. Um, so I get thematically what is supposed to happen at the end. Um, but the movie kind of kind of twists itself into a pretzel getting there. Um, it doesn't surprise me that Angela ends up um, – there is a certain amount of logic that Angela – Angela is probably saying she thinks Jane's dad is cute earlier in the movie to tease Jane. Um, she, she probably has not thought about such a thing. And then she gets into a big fight with her best friend, um, and she's in a, in a weak moment. And, and here is here is an older guy expressing interest in her. Now, I'm sure part of her thought that was creepy – um, and part of her was like, well, this is, in fact, what I've been telling people I am. Um, huh. And now it's happening. Um, so I, I think there is a certain amount of that that makes sense in the uh, in, in who Angela as a character is. Um, I also I, I think, though, if you look at the movie on the whole, um, 
it, it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad that that the movie structures the 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 movie structures the the catalyst to Lester Burnham's rebellion from his former life as lusting after the best friend of his daughter. Um, there's something very kind of I don't know Eisenhower era about that that just seems that that seems not only retrograde but a little gross to me. I, I'm curious if you what you think about that. Yeah, I, I, there are a lot of things that even as I loved the movie initially that didn't really make sense to me. And and one was was sort of Lester's sort of teenager teenage flusterment with with Angela early in the movie. A lot of the Carolyn Burnham stuff didn't make sense to me, including the fact that she was suddenly was going to kill her husband. You mentioned an interesting thing in our email exchange about the idea of the isolation and loneliness of masculinity. And I think that ties into Lester, even as he's a flawed character. So what do you think of the movie's statement about masculinity in 1999 and how it plays in 2019? I, I mostly view it through um, – I, I mostly – view it through the lens of Sam Mendes's career because if if you look at the seven or eight films Sam Mendes has made they are almost all about 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 this about the loneliness of men um everything from everything from I mean I guess I guess away we go is about is about the the um away we go is about the the uncertainty of parenthood uh, and becoming parents but um everything from revolution road Starting with American Beauty, um, up through Revolution Road, up through uh, 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 stopping at you know before then at Road to Perdition and Jarhead, and really reaching its its peak at Skyfall. It, it, it is about this this idea of of men being men being trapped in the expectations that were um, that were foisted upon them. Um, and coming to realize the the limits of those expectations and really having no no, escape or trapdoor from them. Um, that's it. That's a theme he comes back to again and again. Now, like I said, American beauty was, was the beneficiary of very good timing because that was very much in the culture at the time. This, this sort of crisis, I, I, I hate that word, but the, this crisis of, of, of what it means to be an American man that, that I, I think was probably launched by fight club and is, is touched upon a little bit in movies like in movies like the matrix and the game and, um, and well, definitely in the company of men and, and Neil LeBute's early work at that time. Magnolia um, came out in 1992. So yeah, yeah. Magno, um, Magnolia also right around that time. Um, I, I think the, <sighs> I don't think American Beauty has anything all that deep to say about it. Um, I, I, in fact, I don't even think it's necessary that the main character be Lester Burnham. I, I think the movie could be very interestingly told from Carolyn Burnham's point of view. But the movie, in, in the abstract and in the larger sense, is really about like is really about people who don't know how to make themselves happy, um, and and how few how few options we give people to make themselves happy if if the two or three that we make available don't work for them. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to American Beauty and the writing of Kevin Smokler, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.